Well, we are going to start here this morning in a, a new three, four week, three, three or four week uh, series. Uh, and before I tell you what that series is about, I want to tell you what the, the title of this message is. Uh, it's called Lab Rats No Longer. How many of you don't want to be a lab rat? All right, so you're going you're gonna to enjoy this message, I promise you. It's Lab Rats No Longer. And it, there's two verses I want us to read just to sort of prime the pump. Um, we'll come back to these here in a little bit, but two very important verses. The first is in Luke 14, when Jesus says to his disciples, Those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. What's up with that? Who do not give up everything. And then in Matthew 6, he says, Don't worry, saying, What am I going to eat? Or what am I going to drink? What am I going to wear? Pagans run after these things. A pagan is just anybody who, who's not under the lordship of Christ, who's not under the reign of God, the kingdom of God. A worldling. And you expect them to chase after things. What else is there? But for kingdom people, you don't know that your heavenly father knows that you need stuff to eat and wear. But we're to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Our bullseye is the kingdom of God, not stuff. And um, we just trust that if we do that, keep our eyes on the bullseye of the kingdom of God, then all these other things will be given to us as well. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pray with me here for a moment. Uh, Lord, I am just so, so thankful for your presence here right now. Uh, so intense in the worship time. And I, I thank you, God, for every person in this auditorium who's here. Uh, he listens to this message. And every person in our pod congregation. Uh, God, whatever they're doing right now, I just pray, Lord, that you pull their attention uh, to these words here this morning. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to do with these words something the words themselves can never do, and that is uh, to build your kingdom in our hearts and in our minds. And more specifically, Lord, we're praying that you wake us up to see something that we normally don't see, and God, to throw off chains that we don't maybe even know are there, um, and, and to get out of prisons that we don't even know we're in. Things that are keeping us from growing into your likeness and manifesting your love. Uh, Lord, I pray that, that the captives would be set free this morning. Um, and, and, and even those who don't know that they're captives. And they don't even know that we need, we need freedom. Lord, set us free. Wake us up. Open our eyes. But I can't do this, Lord, so I just rest in your sufficiency. Let it be done in Jesus' name. And all of God's kingdom people said, Amen. 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 Let me start by asking this question. If, if I was to ask you what you think is the most serious threat to Christianity or to the kingdom of God, what would that be? I, some might say, well, it's the new, those new atheists, you know, those really evangelistic, loud atheists. They're, they're doing Christopher Hitchens and, and Dawkins and that crowd. They're, they're a real threat. Or others might say, no, it's, it's uh, the encroaching secularism of the culture, that's the threat, or it's the pornographic nature of our culture, that's really the threat, or it's the lethargy of the church, or false teachings of the church, or maybe it's the New Age movement, uh, with all of its uh, spiritualized teaching, that that's, that's the greatest threat. And those things, you know, are, are, are threats. They, they, they push back on the kingdom. But I submit to you that they aren't the most serious threat. Because those are all things that you can identify, you can see them coming, you can prepare for them, you can respond to them. The most serious threat, is something we don't see. The most serious threat is something that we consider to be normal. The most serious threat is something that's on the inside of us and we don't even know is there. Because this kind of a threat, well, it works from the inside out and it's invisible. It goes stealth. 
Uh, it's what we think is normal that we as kingdom people have to be most suspicious of. We live in an atmosphere that's full of deception. It's what deceives us uh, that we have to be concerned with. And if we saw it, it wouldn't be deceiving us. You've heard this uh, analogy, I'm sure, a lot of you anyways, about what happens to a frog if you put it in a pot of water and you just heat it very slowly. You heard that? I'm, t- I'm told, I don't know if this is even true, I suspect it is, but, but that, that you can boil a frog alive in a pot of water if you raise the temperature uh, slowly enough. Um, I'm not going to try this out because that would be mean, and I don't want you to try it out either. But um, that's what I'm told, that because a frog being a reptile, its uh, blood temperature always matches its environment, and so it wouldn't even notice that it's being boiled. And so the analogy is this, that we are in some respects like that frog. People, human beings in general, are conformists. We tend to acclimate to our environment. There's even a social theory around this, um, uh, mimetic theory where uh, it, 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 it basically argues that human beings are, are born imitators. We learn by imitating, and, and, and it's what we do by nature. We imitate what's around us. And that tells us that unless we are intentional about doing otherwise, we'll, by na- nature, default to the norm of our environment, the norm of our culture. And what has to concern us is that there are things about our culture that feel normal to us, but that are actually contrary to the kingdom. In fact, I'm going to argue that they are anti-Christ. Anti being against, Christ being what it means to be in Christ. They're anti-Christ, they're diabolical, they're sinister, they erode the life of the kingdom, but we don't even notice them. Uh, We acclimate to them. They're part of our normal. In fact, there are aspects of the culture that not only are we not taught to resist them, we think that they're normal, but in some environments, some religious environments in particular, that some of us have come out of, we're taught that these are actually things that are Christian, things that we're supposed to celebrate. And uh, this morning, I'm going to pray that we wake up to see that they're actually diabolical. Um, We swim in water that is boiling and we don't notice it. It's boiling the kingdom life right out of us. Now, the kingdom, we say this a lot around here, it's not about primarily about believing certain things. Most people think that's what being a Christian is. Or do you believe in this, this, and this? And certainly believing in certain things is important, but the beliefs are not the end in and of themselves. The beliefs are a means to an end. And the end is not the beliefs, but a relationship with Jesus Christ. Uh, a life-giving, life-transforming relationship with Jesus Christ that transforms us into his image. That's the kingdom. We are in the kingdom to the degree that our life is moving in the direction of looking like Jesus Christ. And more specifically, we're in the kingdom to the degree that our life is mirroring, manifesting the kind of character that God has as it's revealed on the cross. Where the cross, where God manifested, his very nature is self-sacrificial love. He shows his outrageous mercy and amazing grace that we sing about this morning. And, and his, his uh, amazing generosity by how he pours himself out for us on the cross while we were yet enemies of his. We are in the kingdom to the degree that our life is reflecting that. And it doesn't matter what we believe or don't believe. Um, that's not what defines us in the kingdom. What matters is that our beliefs have built a relationship that's transforming us in that direction. And see, there are things in our culture, and let me say this, that I, um, I'm going to be speaking here about American culture because Woodland Hills is in America. 
Uh, parishioners who are listening from different countries, you'll have to apply this whole series uh, to your own country and, and your own environment. Every country, every culture has got aspects of it that are normal, and yet they're contrary to the kingdom. And you'll have to wake up to those as, as you're in your own situation. Here, we here in America have this environment that we swim in um, that's considered normal, and yet there are fundamental aspects of it that are absolutely contrary to the kingdom. And this, I think, is the most serious threat precisely because it feels normal to us. We're used to it. And this whole series then is about waking up to an aspect of the normal American culture that is contrary, that subverts, that sucks the life out of our growing in the kingdom, our growing in the likeness of Jesus Christ, revealing God's love on the cross. More specifically, what I'm going to be zeroing in on, and I don't do this to pick on America, I do this because we live in America. As, as kingdom people, our job is to be aware of our environment. But one of the most fun, antichrist aspects of the culture in which we find ourselves in has to do with the way that we are systematically influenced, even brainwashed, to embrace consumerism. And by that, I'm referring to this uh, pursuit of uh, this sense of that we need to pursue as much of the American dream and get it here and now, to have our best life now. And when I say American dream, I'm not referring to Martin Luther King's uh, dream of having a culture in which people are judged not by the color of their skin, but by their character. Uh, that'd be a good thing. And I'm not referring to even the political dream of the founding fathers, to have a, a, a culture in which everyone can pursue life, liberty, and happiness on their own. Because politically speaking, that's a good thing. What I'm referring to with the American dream is the economic aspect of it, the consumerism aspect of it, where we're conditioned to be perpetually discontented. We're conditioned to always want more, want the bigger, want the better, want the faster, want the shinier, want the new and improved. And whatever situation we're in, we think there's something better we can get. And so we're always chasing after stuff. That, I submit to you, is completely, absolutely, unconditionally, unqualifiedly contrary to the kingdom. It is fundamentally antichrist. We've got to wake up to how pervasive it is in the culture and wake up to just how contrary to the kingdom it actually is. It is, I think, one of the greatest threats that we face, precisely because it feels normal to us. Now, this isn't a new thing in America. It goes back uh, to our, our very beginning. Uh, there was a guy who, in 1835, he was a social scientist, a French guy, uh, Alex de Tocqueville. And he came over to America to study democracy in America and American culture. And he then published a book on his findings in 1835, a fairly famous book called Democracy in America. And here's what he says. This is 1835. He says, Americans are extremely eager in the pursuit of immediate material pleasures and are always discontented with the position that they occupy. They think about nothing but always of changing their lot and bettering it. For people in this frame of mind, every new way of getting wealth more quickly, every machine which lessens work, every means of diminishing the cost of production, every invention which makes pleasures easier or greater, seems the most magnificent accomplishment of the human mind. And this is before Apple was invented, by the way. <laughs> One usually finds that the love of money is either the chief or the secondary motive at the bottom of everything Americans do. He's painting with kind of broad strokes here. I'm sure there were some exceptions, but generally speaking, this is what he saw. 
This gives a family likeness to all their passions and soon makes them wearisome to contemplate. <laughs> he apparently didn't care for Americans very much. This French guy, who does he think he is? You Americans are wearisome, all your pursuits and stuff. Well, see, here's the thing. That's 1835. If that was true in 1835, I submit to you that it's at least dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, more true in 2013. Think about this. Back then, for advertisements, all they had going for them was basically this. You could either put an ad in the newspaper, which most people didn't read, or you put an ad in a a magazine, which even fewer people read, or you had a billboard of some kind, a sign on the side of your wagon or or on a storefront. That was about it. Today, everywhere we turn, there are advertisements. We live in a culture where we're moving in the direction where every square inch of public space is selling something. Have you noticed this? Advertisements are everywhere. I mean, people are even buying cars at a reduced rate now. Uh, if their car is one big advertisement, have you seen these things, the Domino's car going around or, or whatever they're, they're selling? Uh, the whole... Everything sells. Pencils sell. There's advertisements on school buses and lunchrooms and doctor's office. All public spaces being occupied by commercials. In fact, one study I read this week said that the average American uh, comes across 10, over 10,000 advertisements every day. And all the media that we're surrounded by. Now, we don't notice most of those. In fact, we only uh, are conscious of uh, between 200 and 250 of them. But that's an awful lot of advertisements. Now, these advertisements are intended to get you to feel like you need what they are selling. That's what they're there for. And so we're bombarded 24-7 by these advertisements trying to get us to be discontent with where we're at so that we'll purchase their product. And it works. It works. Uh, Look, you wouldn't have advertisers spending millions and millions and millions of dollars for 30 seconds on a Super Bowl game if it didn't work. They've done studies on this. They know where to put their money, and these commercials are very, very effective. I don't know how they're effective. I look at some of these things, and I don't even know what they're advertising. But I do know that somehow they're getting into my brain. Uh, These things work. In fact, for most national-level commercials now, uh, they they hire specialists. So the best and the brightest minds in neuroscience. Neuroscience is the, the science of learning how the brain works. How, 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 how to install triggers, how to install messages. And they hire these neuroscientists to help them design the best, most efficient uh, 30-second commercial that will get into the brains of their target audience and get them to feel a want, uh, even a need, for the product that they're selling. And we are bombarded by this all the time. So if it's true in 1835 that people were perpetually discontent and always chasing after more, I submit to you that it's at least dozens, if not hundreds of times, more true today. We're bombarded with brainwashing commercials that are, there's a lot of money and a lot of IQ going into how to control you and how to control me so that we're discontent and chasing after more and more stuff. And then on top of that now, there's a more recent thing where it's become our patriotic duty to spend. Have you noticed that? It's, it's kind of like you're un-American if you're not spending stuff. You know, after 9-11, George Bush said, the best thing we can do for our country, I guess the terrorists, is to go out and start spending. Buy stuff. That's what we need to do. It's your patriotic duty. And it's true that the economy would collapse in a second if people ever got content. If people just stopped buying for one day, the whole thing would fall flat. We need to be a, a culture of hungry people for this, for this thing to work. And 
I'm not commenting on the pros and cons of capitalism or the free market system. It works. It does work. It produces a good gross national product. Wonderful. Hallelujah. But as kingdom people, that's not our criteria for whether we spend or not. We've got an even higher calling, and that is to be faithful to the kingdom. And what I want us to see now is that this, 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 this system that is forming our brains to be perpetually hungry, to chase after stuff, is, um, is absolutely contrary to the kingdom. I don't want to sound conspiratorial or paranoid. Maybe I am, though. But look at There's forces out there, folks. Just because I'm paranoid doesn't mean that they aren't out to get us. There's forces out there. Forces, smart forces, wealthy forces, powerful forces that are coming at us 24-7, all with the expressed intent of keeping us discontented and chasing after, uh, chasing after stuff. And it makes me mad. It ticks me off. It ought to tick you off, too. I mean, it makes you feel like we're, we're rats in a consumeristic laboratory, and there are these mad neuroscientists who have placed electrodes on the rats, and they stimulate the rats uh, so that they're always discontent, and they're chasing uh, faster and faster after the ever-elusive cheese of the American dream. They're reducing our brains to a bundle of discontented neurons, motivating us to always want more and more and more stuff. Chasing after it, never quite getting it, or we get it, and then we're discontent with that. Because discontentment is based in the whole system. And see, folks, this, I don't want to be a lab rat to you. I don't want to be chasing chase after some cheese, having my brain controlled by forces outside of myself. Uh, and so this ought to make us mad. Not just because it keeps us discontent and tired and weary, but even more profoundly because what, it's, what all these things are trying to do to us is move us in a direction that's absolutely antithetical to the kingdom. Absolutely antithetical. So let's look at those passages that we looked at earlier when we started. First, Matthew 6. Jesus says, don't worry. Uh, what, what you're going to eat, or what you're going to drink, or what you're going to wear. The worldlings chase after that. That's normal. That's, what, else, what else have they got? They chase after the sun. They worry about that. But you know your heavenly Father knows you need those things. So you seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and just trust that all these other things will be given to you. See, we're not to be pagans who chase after stuff. We're to seek first the kingdom. But can you see that every one of these commercials, and there's other forces that work as well, they're trying to get us to act exactly like pagans and chase after stuff. They install in us this kind of a uh, uh, message, this narrow net like a virus that uh, um, gets us to always be wanting, discontent. And to the degree that we're conformed to that, that message, we can't be conformed to Jesus' message to not worry about those things. We're worrying about nothing other than those things. Or what about Jesus when he says, uh, don't own anything. Whoever, whoever does not give up everything they have cannot be my disciple. Now think about this. I don't think Jesus is saying here that we can't legally own things. Uh, Jesus, so far as I know, wore clothes. Um, and so he owned some things. Um, his disciples wore clothes. It, they legally owned the clothes and the sandals, whatever they had. Some of them had houses uh, we, we know about, and, and they had boats that they fished in. And Jesus doesn't say that they're supposed to give up those. So I don't think he's saying that we, we can't legally own stuff. But what he's saying, folks, is that we can't own stuff. We can't ever cling to things as though they're ours. Mine. Um, for a kingdom person, uh, we, we, we have to give it all up. We may live in it. We may wear it. We may drive it. Uh, we may enjoy it, but it's not ours. You see, what it means to come to Jesus and surrender your life to him is that you surrender your life to him. Um, it means that, that 
everything that's part of your life is surrendered to him. And if it's all surrendered to him, that means it's his. So if I'm surrendered to Jesus, my life is his. That's why I can't disobey him to protect it. It's not mine any longer. He owns it. And it means that my clothes belong to him. Uh, my, my car belongs to him. My house belongs to him. My bank account belongs to him. All my relationships belong to him. I've got nothing. I'm naked. Uh, that is the best way to live, by the way. Not literally naked, but uh, to, be, to own nothing. And see, folks, this is, the, this, is, this is so foundational to the kingdom because it's only when we have an open palm policy towards everything, even our own life, that we can possibly live out the kingdom. To the degree that we're clinging to our life, we're not going to love our enemies who threaten us. No. We'll do what we need to to protect what's ours. And what's ours is our life. And to the degree that we're uh, clinging to our stuff, um, well, we, we can't possibly manifest the outrageous generosity and self-sacrificial love uh, of God. It's, it, it's ours. We'll be clinging to it. It's only this mindset that frees us to live with outrageous generosity. Because see, if it's his, then I'm to submit it to him. And if he says I can wear it, then I can wear it. But if he says I'm supposed to give it away, i got to give it away because it's not mine. And if he says I can drive it, I can drive it. But if he says sell it and give the money to the poor, then i got to sell it and give it to the poor. And if, and if he says my house is mine and you can enjoy it, that's fine. I should do that without any kind of guilt. But if he says i got to share it with some others, I've got to share it with some others because it's his house, not mine. And only this mindset can produce a people who are outrageous in manifesting Abba Father's character. Otherwise, we'll be clinging to stuff. Just clinging as though it's ours. But see, can you see that every commercial we see is trying to get us to do the opposite? The, the neuroscientists with their clever commercials, and there's other forces as well, uh, instead of owning nothing, they're trying to get us to always want to own more and more and more. They're always chasing after more. Instead of living with outrageous generosity, they're trying to get us to live with outrageous greed. And whereas Jesus says, don't live like the pagans and chase after things, every commercial we see is trying to get us to act just like pagans and always be chasing after things. These two things are absolutely contrary, antithetical to the kingdom. Um, the, the messages are, are, it cuts to the core of what we're called to be. And the best minds, and all this money and all this power is being invested in getting us to move in that direction. And and so can you see how this is diabolical? This is sinister. All the more so because it feels so doggone normal. It feels so doggone normal. This is just the way way you do it. This is just what what, what, uh, life's all about. It's just just part of the water we swim in. It's boiling the kingdom out of us, but most of us don't notice it very much, very often. This brainwashing that's going on all the time is, is all around us, and all the evidence indicates that it works very good. Um, it's installing in us a, a, a disease. The disease is called affluenza. I didn't make this up. It, it, it's actually a term that's out there now. A uh, social scientist, not a Christian, so far as I know, but on, the, on a, uh, the public broadcasting system, he defined affluenza this way. I love this. This is great. He says, it's that bloated, sluggish, unfulfilled feeling that results from efforts to keep up with the Joneses. That's a good one. Uh, it is, a second definition would be, it's an epidemic of stress, overwork, waste, and indebtedness caused by the dogged pursuit of the American dream. Or it's that unsustainable addiction to economic growth. Every commercial is trying to install uh, uh, the affluenza virus in us. To, to be in discontent, to always be wanting. And this definition sums it up in a nutshell. This is what it's all geared towards. 
Uh, we're being conditioned to so that uh, we'll have the, always have this unfulfilled feeling uh, and this addiction to economic improvement that causes us to work more and more and more and to stress ourselves out, out as we are in this dogged pursuit of the American dream and don't want to fall behind the Joneses. That's what the system is trying to get us to do, and it's as contrary to the kingdom as anything could possibly be. The symptoms of affluenza are everywhere. I want us to look at just a couple of statistics to help us wake up to this. Uh, here, here's some, some evidence that this is actually working here. In 1973, between 1973 and 2004, the average house size went from six, 1,600 square feet to 2,400 square feet. So it was up by a third. During that same period, rented story space more than tripled. In 2010, Americans rented 1.9 billion square feet of storage space. So what does that tell you? Our houses are getting bigger and bigger. Um, and yet they still can't keep up with the, the stuff that we're getting. So we've got to rent out storage space to house all the stuff that we're getting because our houses, though they're one-third bigger than they were in 74, aren't able to keep it all. This went down a little bit during the recession in 2008, but now it's pretty much back up to where it was before. It's a symptom of affluenza. So houses that, that seemed big in 1974, 1,600 square feet, now feel, for most people, small. Because it's beneath the norm. The water is boiling. The frogs don't notice it. We just acclimate to what's, what's already out there. I, I went back uh, last year and looked at the house that I grew up in, in Cottage Grove. And it, it seemed so big as a kid. Oh, I felt like I was a king in a mansion. And now it seems so small. It's a puny little thing. See, it's just, it, it's, it's all about we, uh, us adjusting to the norm of the culture. Here's another one that should concern us. The average family credit card that in 2013 was 15000 or is $15,159. That's three times what it was in 1990. Folks, that's, that's quite a bit of debt, don't you think? That's, see, here's a, here's a fundamental aspect of how we're being conditioned. Lord helps to wake up to this. Um, not only are we conditioned to be these rats in this consumeristic laboratory, controlled by neuroscientists, to always want more and more and more, but we're conditioned to want it now. Uh, right now. Uh, we, we, we have a sense of entitlement that we had get it now. And so we're conditioned to buy it now and pay for it later. Forgetting the fact that if you pay for it later, you're paying a lot more for it than if you pay for it now. So by definition, we're being conditioned to live beyond our means. It wasn't always this way. In fact, this is a fairly recent phenomenon. When I was a kid a couple of years ago, growing up, uh, they had this thing called layaway programs. Remember those things? Where if you wanted something, you put it on layaway, the store would reserve it, and then you made payments towards that thing, weekly or monthly or whatever. Uh, and then when you finally paid it off, then you got it. I remember as a kid, uh, I usually wore hand-me-downs, but my brother ripped a coat that I was supposed to get, so I get to get a new coat. I think it was the only new piece of clothing I ever got. And, but we couldn't afford it, so we put it on layaway, like in July or August. And the whole question we were asking is, will we get that coat before the first snow, snowfall? Will Greggy have a coat for winter? Because you don't get the coat until you pay for it. But see, now, bring out the plastic. Going to get it on my good credit. You know that, power, that Tower of Power song? Um, you probably couldn't recognize the way I sing it. It's not very good singing. <laughs> Going to get, never mind. But yeah, it doesn't even feel like money, does it? It's just a piece of plastic. Here, so easy. You know, if you pay for it with cash, it's like a pain. There's another dollar. It's painful. You see it going out of you. It's like an ATM machine. The parents know that when you have kids. You're like an ATM machine. It goes out. But with credit, it's just one little swipe and you're done. You forget about it, but then there's an 18% charge. You know? And then, see, now the, the whole culture is making it so easy 
uh, to, to buy things on credit because the, the monthly payments get very affordable. So we're being conditioned to not even ask what do things cost anymore. We're being conditioned to ask, uh, what's the monthly payment? Can I afford the monthly payment? And it's to the seller's advantage to, for you to forget to ask the question of what's the whole thing and to only go with the monthly payment because that's how they make more money off of you, you see? Uh, by borrowing from the future to live uh, beyond your means in the present, uh, you end up giving more of your money to them. You become indentured. We become indentured servants because we think we own stuff in the present, but really it owns us. And now we're working for it, you see? And, uh, and then there's, there's, there's no savings. The average uh, a family saved in 19, was it, 1960, average family saved 10% of their income. Now, in 2012, the average family saved 1%, and one survey I found had it at a negative 1%. What's happened is we've lost the ability to have delayed gratification. We have this sense, I need it now. i got to have it now. Why should I put off getting it? No, I, I, I want it now. And, then we, and what happens is we don't have any cushion. We've, we live beyond our means without any savings. And so when something happens uh, that requires a lot of expenditure, a house fire or a health crisis or whatever, we've got nothing to fall back on. Which means we've got to go even more in debt. And all of this just stresses us out and, and overworks our system and causes havoc. And the most important thing it does is it erodes our capacity to live with an outrageous generosity and self-sacrificial love, manifesting that to all people at all times. But see, none of this should surprise us, folks, because this is, what, this is exactly how people will behave when they're being deluged 24-7 by ingeniously designed commercials that are reducing their brains to uh, discontented neural nets to motivate them to spend, 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 spend. This is how people behave when they're, they're, they're being brainwashed by these brilliant minds and all this money. This is the normal of our culture. This is what we swim in. It feels normal to have this kind of debt. Normal to work this much. Normal to be this stressed out. Normal to have hardly any spare time. and Normal to have no savings. Normal to be chasing the ever-elusive cheese of the American dream. But folks, what's normal in the culture is not what's normal for the kingdom of God. Amen? That's not our normal. We're called to march to a different drummer and to dance to a different tune, praise God, to serve a different God and to manifest a different character. Uh, uh, the normal of the kingdom of God is that we are to own nothing and we're to chase after nothing and to be discontented with nothing. Our normal is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and to trust Abba Father for all these other things. Our normal should be to be free from the lab rats of the consumeristic uh, laboratory and to be free from mind control and to be free from discontentment. And, and our call is to put on display to people, for people a different kind of country, right? A different kind of, uh, of citizenship, citizenship of heaven. And to put on display a different kind of, of lifestyle. Uh, to invite people by our lives into uh, sharing in the character of Abba Father and the generosity of Abba Father and the mercy of Abba Father and the peace of Abba Father and the simplicity of Abba Father. And to do that, folks, we've got to wake up to... The Antichrist brainwashing that's going on around us 24-7. And we've got to be frogs that get out of that water before it boils us. Amen. Amen. I want to be clear here, hear this now. I am not saying that it's not good to work. There are folks I've met who have seen the rat race. And they said, well, I'm going to opt out of that. And so they, they quit working. And they don't support their families. Uh, the Bible says whoever doesn't support their families is worse than an infidel. Uh, First Timothy says that. No, we're supposed to work. Uh, at least some of the family is supposed to work. And it support the family. And the folks who don't do that, they think they're being spiritual, but usually they live on other people's work. 
even while they're sometimes judging them. So it's not saying don't work. I'm also not saying that there's anything intrinsically evil about having a mortgage payment for a house. In this economy, most people need that. Or having a loan for a car. Uh, or, or going out to movies and enjoying extra stuff. Uh, I don't think God call, has called everybody to complete abject poverty. Uh, as long as it's within your means. And as long as you've subjected your budget to Abba Father and you're following His direction. And if He says enjoy it, enjoy it and don't feel guilty about it. Alright? That's not the issue. What I am saying is this. To live in this kingdom means that, that we are going to have to be a people who get out of this brainwashing. And it means that we're called to demonstrate what it, what it looks like to reflect the generosity and self-sacrificial love of Abba Father. I also want to say this, that there's no place in the kingdom for anybody to, to look at somebody who they're not in a relationship with, who hasn't invited them to speak into their life, and to judge them on the basis of the house they have, or the car they drive, or the clothes they wear, or the lifestyle they have. Uh, there, there's no room for that. You don't know anything about them. If they're not in your covenant relationship, you're allowed to have one opinion of them, right? And what's that one opinion? You, you agree that they were Jesus Christ dying for. They have unsurpassable worth. Uh, so there's no judgment here. There's no condemnation here. Uh, there's also no, no laziness here. But what it is saying, folks, is that if we're going to manifest the kingdom, we've got to opt out of this rat race. We've got to take the electrodes off of our brain. We've got to wake up to the water that's boiling us, and we've got to hop out of that pan now. Um, it, it's this simple. It comes down to this. And I never saw this as clearly as I saw it uh, this last week. That it is impossible to manifest the generosity and sacrifice of Abba's character, God's character, if we're living beyond our means. Which is what everything the culture is trying to get us to do. It's impossible. Because you can't give what you don't have. How can you be outrageously generous and sacrificial with your time if you hardly even have time for your own spouse and kids and, and a few intimate friends? Because you're so busy working to consume stuff. There's just nothing to give there. And how can you be outrageously generous and sacrificial with your money if you can't even afford your own lifestyle? Because you've borrowed so much from the future to pay for the luxuries of the present that you're an indentured servant. It's impossible to live out the kingdom on the one hand and yet be conformed to the message of consumerism in our culture. The two are antithetical, which is why I say consumerism is antichrist. It may work well as an economic system, wonderful, wonderful, uh, but, but the message at the core of it, the discontentment at the core of it, is uh, it, it works, it erodes the kingdom, it boils the kingdom right out of us. We can't give what we don't have. If we're going to manifest the generosity and sacrifice of Abba Father, we can only do it to the degree that we live beneath our means. Only that creates space in our life, so we've actually got something to give. We've got time to offer, we've got money to share, we've got things uh, to share uh, with others to put the character of God on display. That's why I'm saying that that uh, teaching of Jesus to not own anything is at the core of this. Only if we let go of all of this and stop chasing stuff and live more simply and create space in our life uh, can we possibly live out the kingdom. And that actually, folks, is also the recipe for living a more peaceful, stress-free, healthy life. It's the best way to live. Uh, Jesus knows what he's talking about when he recommends things to us. So let me end with just four quick little tips here. And I'll be sharing a lot more practical tips in the weeks to come. But four things to kind of get us started here. Very quickly, five minutes. Here, here's this. First of all, as I've been saying throughout this whole message, we've got to wake up and get mad. 
You don't want to be a lab rat, right? You don't want to be under someone's mind control. Now, I'm not saying get mad at the social, at the neuroscientists who designed the commercials. They're just trying to make a living. I'm not even saying get mad at the commercials, though, frankly, some of the commercials bug me. Victoria's Secret stuff, we don't need that. But, uh, but look at, you know, it, it, some of the commercials are funny, you know, fine. It's not, it's, our battle is not against flesh and blood. I'll say more about this next week, but, but it's about the system that we're in. And we, we don't have to get mad at people, but the, the system we're in that's moving us in a direction, trying to control our brains to move exactly contrary to the kingdom. Despite what we believe, our, our lives go this way. That's why there's this disconnect between what we believe and how we live. We're being brainwashed. So we've got to get mad at that and revolt against it. That means waking up to the normal, the, the, the antichrist nature of the normal that we, that, that we swim in. Second thing is this. We've got to always remember, kingdom people, this is foundational to everything, that what we really hungry for, hunger for is God. See, here's the thing. The consumerism is, at its core, idolatry. It's idolatry. Uh, because we all have inside of us. It, it, it tries to get us to chase after things the way we're supposed to chase after God. And anything that plays a God role in our life is an idol. Number one sin of the Bible, actually. Uh, we have this emptiness on the inside. All of us do. This feeling of, of emptiness. And it's there on purpose. God gave it, gave it to us because it's our homing device to direct us towards God. We hunger for God. The one who alone can fill us with a fullness of life and love and security and purpose. But what these brilliantly designed commercials do, and there's other forces as well that we could speak of, is they, they, they install this virus of affluenza like a computer virus, and it screws up our homing device. It's like our God-centered GPS system got a, a, a computer virus in it. So now, it, they, the hunger that we have, if we're under the deception of the message of our consumeristic culture, we think that we're hungry for that product or that product or this thing or the new spouse or, or, or freedom from our spouse or got to get that car or what have you. When what we're really hungry for is God. We want life. We want a fullness. But under the deception of the messages that we're bombarded with 24-7, we think that it's about, if only I had this. Oh, if only I got the new kitchen. If only I had that dress. If only I had this car. Well, then I'd be so happy. Then I'd be so fulfilled. Then I'd be so wonderful. And we live in this if only lie, when in fact, it never happens. The fulfillment is so temporary. We all know this. Uh, uh, Discontentedness is built into the system. It's it, it just like uh, they now make products, I'm told, that are, have built-in obsolescence, is that it, or built-in defectiveness, so that it wears out after a certain amount of time, so that you'll have to buy a new product in a little, in a while, in a little while. Breaking down is built into it. Well, so also, discontentedness is built into the message. If you ever got happy, the system wouldn't work any longer. So the miserableness is, is, is built into it, but they have to hide that so that you want the product and chase after it and borrow from the future to pay for it in the present. What we're hungry for is God, which creates the third point, and that is this. We've got to carve out time for that relationship with God. One of the most sinister aspects of the whole consumer thing is that the rats on the treadmill chasing the elusive cheese of the American dream, uh, it, it, it takes up all this time and adds all this stress that people don't have quality time with God. Or even quality time with their spouse and kids, often. Every relationship takes time including our relationship with Abba Father. And so we've got to carve out time, make a date 
Like you make a day for everything else. Where this is where you'll sit and be with God and, 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 and have and enjoy that relationship that gives you that sense of fullness. Um, it, it's, it doesn't have, it, it's good, to, it's necessary and important to be aware of God and try, try to practice the presence of God throughout the day and talk to Jesus throughout the day and let him be your invisible friend wherever you go and have that. That's important, very important. But just like in a marriage, there also has to be time where you're set aside to be facing one another and looking at one another. And so we need to have time where we carve out. I, I like to just darken the room and put on some nice music and, and then do what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, where you behold the beauty of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And you envision Jesus. I talk about this in my book, Seeing is Believing, for those who have trouble having a real life-fulfilling relationship with God and he set apart dates. But uh, it, you, you, you hear him say to you all the things he said in Scripture about how he loves you and died for you and cares for you. But now he's saying it to you personally. And he's saying it with your name. And you can see the love in his eyes. And you can feel the, the love in, in, in his hug. And, and just drink in that love. That's what you were created for. Uh, and you love him and he loves you. And, and let the Holy Spirit take you wherever you go with that. But see, that's where the fullness of life comes. When my sense of worth and happiness and joy and, and, and security comes from experiencing God's love for me, well, see, that's the thing that can free me from chasing the idols. As long as you're hungry, you're going to be chasing idols. You've got to get full. If you're not living out of a fullness of life, you're going to be living out of an emptiness. And your homing device is going to get messed up. Either the homing device is working and you're getting life from God, or your homing device is going to be jacked and you'll be trying to find it in the new car. No, folks, everything in the kingdom is to come out of this fullness of life that we have from Jesus Christ. Um, That's why the kingdom is not a a try-harder, do-good system. Like, let's go out there and buck the system. No, it comes out of a fullness of life that we have in him. Uh, But that takes time, sitting in his presence. So I encourage us to carve out that time and just drink deeply of the infinite well of God's perfect, passionate, unwavering love for you. And that's the thing that will set you free. Uh, when, when, you, when you look at the, the consumerism with the eyes of fullness, you see how shallow it is. When, you've, when you're tasting the fullness of the life of God, you see how absolutely pathetic it is that people think that they're going to get happy if they only get into that house. It's such a deception. But to the degree that you're hungry, uh, that's plausible. Just like a starving person, after three weeks of no food, the crawling bug looks pretty tasty. But if you just had a dinner, I doubt, I doubt you'd be tempted to eat it. Catch that? The people are starving. They'll eat the bug. It looks like a great dinner. But not if you're full. So also, if you're full of the life of God, you look at what people feed on, and it's bugs. It doesn't fill. Ugh. But if you're hungry, it'll look appetizing. Spend time with God. And the final thing is this. We sing this song a lot, uh, but it's foundational. Everything in the kingdom works better when done out of relationship uh, God is a communal God, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and he created us for community. And I don't believe we can hope to possibly buck the system with all this brainwashing going on if we're doing it alone. And so if you don't have a group like this already, I encourage you to seek one out and pray about this, to end, find two or three or five people who also want to buck the system, who also want to get out of the boiling water, and together covenant to do this. Um, Together, surrender all that you have to, 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 to Christ. And remind each other that we don't own anything. And now you're going to try to live that out. 
And then together begin to pray and talk about how you can begin to move in the direction of the kingdom. How you can begin to resist the messages of the culture. How, how can you get, begin to go from living beyond your means to living beneath your means so that you can individually and together begin to manifest the outrageous generosity and self-sacrificial love of God to others? It doesn't happen overnight. It takes time to retrofit your life into the kingdom. Uh, some of us have been trying to do it for 20-some years, and it's not easy. Life has a flow. You already got the debt. You're already in the house. You already got these, these things here. Um, it is what it is. But it doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter where you start. What matters is where you go. And so start taking baby steps in this direction. You ask the question, what can I lose right now? Ask it to God. Ask it to the friends. Since none of it's mine, what am I supposed to enjoy and what am I not supposed to enjoy? And then develop strategies for how you can be living in increasing simplicity and increasingly beneath your means so that you can demonstrate to the world the absolute joy of giving. Uh, giving stuff away. There's no greater joy than that. It's fun. It's fun. But you can't do it if you're held captive to the house and captive to the car and captive to the credit card com- companies. Uh, that's it, folks. Um, I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit seals this on our hearts because I know the minute we leave here, we're going to see some advertisements. <laughs> Probably about 120 on the way home. Um, but uh, um, uh, I, I pray the Holy Spirit seals this. As I do, I want to ask the prayer teams to come up here. And if you're here this morning and have any need whatsoever that you'd like to have prayed for, come up here and, and talk with these folks. Uh, it can be about this topic. It can be about any topic that, that's on your heart. Or if, you were to, if you're not a disciple of Jesus, you're not surrendered to him. Maybe you believe in him, but you're not surrendered. I encourage you to come up here and do that. Uh, that's where you enter into the covenant relationship with him and start to live this off. We just stand. As I, I just want to close in this benediction. As we leave here, people of God, children of God, can we do this with a commitment? To surrender everything that we have to Abba Father. Can we leave here with a commitment to have open palms on everything, to grab onto nothing and to chase after nothing? Can we do this with a commitment to stay awake to the powers that try to get us conform to the normal of this world? And can we leave this place with a commitment to be moving in the direction where we can manifest to, to, to people, to the lost, to the poor, to the homeless, to everybody that God calls us to minister to, the outrageous generosity and the uh, uh, risk-taking, uh, sacrificial love of, of, of God demonstrated on the cross? If that is your heart, say amen. 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 God bless you guys. Go out. Love on the world.